Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today, we have Mike Delibero with us. Mike is the Director of Product Security at iHerb. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Mike, you and I, we were chatting a little bit about this earlier. You've done some phenomenal things in security with a very well-rounded background coming from different aspects of security and even beyond security. You started your career in network security, you were a software programmer before that or somewhere around that time frame. Why don't you start with just a little bit of introduction about yourself, what you do today, and then maybe we can, maybe we can go into your career trajectory as well. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Yeah. So right now I'm uh, responsible for the product security team at a supplement e-commerce site called iHerb. It serves, I don't know, something like 150 plus countries. It's uh, very <laughs> globally distributed and whatnot. Been doing that uh, before that, like I said, I used to program and uh, was always interested in security. I grew up at the right time where application security was just a new thing. So I got to grow up with it. And uh, yeah, I just got lucky that way. So That's fantastic. And uh, you've done some software development before this as well. Did you think that you had a, a little bit of a different perspective coming from a development background and then going into security? I definitely think it helps even now to this day, like we don't run into a ton of AppSec people that have development experience. And, um, you know, I, I think people often forget that like writing code is very different than like actually doing software development. There's a whole additional chunk of work in that process. And, um, you know, knowing that and studying that for a bit, uh, really helped me be able to kind of more empathize with the developers and the development teams and be able to like kind of translate information a bit better to their perspective. So, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You know, at the end of the day, software security is about securing the software that developers are writing. So you, you should probably understand how that works. Now, if you're hiring people who don't come from development background in this role of AppSec or product security, what have you, are there things you can do to make them, you know, get that exposure, learn it a little bit better outside of just reading books and taking courses? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Well, I mean, it depends on the org. Right. I've been at companies where even as application security people, your first week you're shipping a feature. So that's like really good experience, but not every company will do that. So I think, you know, making, not making them if they're interested in it, because it takes all sorts of people to be on the ProdSec or AppSec teams. You know, if they're interested in learning more about writing code and doing software development, I try and carve out some time for them to write tools update different tools if we have existing ones, interface more with the developers or even maybe stick with them on like a project, like creating a shared library or something like that. So yeah. They can start, you know, doing the coding piece, but also working with the devs to start to kind of understand the, the development life cycle and stuff like that. Right, right. And yeah, and I've, I've definitely seen a lot more adoption of those practices these days. And some teams have gone to an extent and also started creating security engineering teams as well, right? So you have either a team of developers uh, from software, like core software developers who are writing security software, 
or security people who love building software themselves. So following all the standard software development practices and really shipping security features within the things or the products that they are building, which is like a fantastic bridge between software development and, and core security aspects, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So early in your career, I was looking at your LinkedIn and your profile. You've worked at some amazing companies. You've uh, you've got some stints at Uber, Unity Technologies, and then you were head of security at Mixpanel before going on to Salesforce and now at iHerb. Walk me through a little bit of you know how each of those companies were different or similar, anything that stands out from a security perspective. Yeah. I mean, they're all different. Even my first corporate job right? Like as a security person was at Microsoft and I was lucky enough to go there during the time where there was a ton of really good talent there before everybody kind of dispersed. It seems like every few years, every 10 years or so, there's a confluence of really awesome talent and then it kind of dispersed out. I was just so lucky to uh, be in at that time. And so, you know, that was interesting to watch some really good people do testing and how they approach testing from a security perspective. So that really helped form some some basis of uh, you know how I approach things, and also you know even then they kind of made software security known, right? Uh, like in two thousand three with mm-hmm. Bill Gates, or around two thousand three, I think it was. Uh, Bill Gates sent that email. Maybe it was two thousand one. I forget. But they were doing stuff that is pretty, I don't know, common now, right? But it wasn't as common then. Quite like, how do they do threat modeling so it doesn't like kill the devs, but also is useful, like. Where do we put the testing? How can we automate this? Like all those things. And you, you know, see those time and time again as well. At other places, my my short time at Uber was awesome. There's a lot of super strong technical people there. And they basically had, when I got hired, a blank check on the security side. So they were just hiring a lot of people and it was awesome, you know. And they were probably the first company I ran into that had a more zero trust approach to things. So that was cool to kind of see. Uh, Before zero trust was a real thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of cool. I mean, they didn't call it zero trust back then, but anyways. And then, uh, you know, Unity was fun and great. That was just kind of by luck. I knew the person that was head of security and they asked if I'm going to be the first hire. So yeah, I just got you there. And then they're all different companies. Uh, Right, right. Yeah. And I guess Unity was the first time where you took up... uh, security leadership, right? You transitioned from an individual contributor to to a leader and built out the AppSec team at Unity. And then after that was Mixpanel, correct? Yep. Yep. For sure. A little bit. Yep. Yeah. And that was, you know, you're talking going from a high-flying globally distributed company, you know, that acquires a bunch of other companies at that point, and they still do, to a, you know, a lot smaller. I think there was only like 50 tabs or so at Mixpanel when I was there, 1500, somewhere around there. So it was a lot smaller, right? And it was very focused on the West Coast. So that was just a completely different vibe and way to approach security and stuff like that. It's a lot more hands-on too. So right, right. It was kind of fun, but yeah, it's awesome. One of the things that I picked up on a super interesting to me at least, is your focus on security automation at many places, but primarily at, at Salesforce, I believe you're uh, you are running a team of security automation engineers, correct? Yeah. Yep. Talk to me, tell me a little bit about why do you need a whole team of security engineers? What were the challenges that you were trying to solve? Or the- yeah, 
Uh, and security automation engineer. Yeah, yeah. Just like any other place, it's a scaling problem. We probably had maybe 150 ProTech engineers to, you know, 15,000 to 20,000 devs. So there's, there's no way that we could operate as quickly as the other teams. You know, the automation that we were working on putting in place was not fancy or state of the art. It was really just like a request comes in for an assessment. If there's a, you know, a code location and if we knew kind of their cloud hosting information, we would execute and kick off certain scans. And the way we knew that stuff was just based on the, the answers they gave and, you know, some simple if statements. But uh, we would kick off, you know, pretty lightweight scans, things like static analysis, checking for SCA issues, you know, checking for Terraform configs and other cloud config issues and stuff like that. Nothing super crazy. But the reason we did that was then the product security engineers there didn't have to do that and didn't have to like spend their time scanning that stuff. And also if it was more consistent, right? Like not everybody would always do those scans. And so if we could do the scans for them, then, you know, we can take that load off their plate. And then we also have a more consistent experience for everybody as well. Yeah. And uh, even before that, at like Unity, I started to deal with the scale of that type of stuff. Different problem, but similar approach, right? Where we had something like 12 or 13 GitHub organizations mm -hmm. from acquisitions and whatnot. And so there was no way for us to be able to keep track without us writing some type of automation to like look at all that stuff, right? Because there's so many different pipelines and tech stacks and everything else. And so like the one consistent thing was using GitHub for source control for the most part. Yeah. yeah. So what exactly are you looking for when you say you had 13, 14 different GitHub orgs and it's hard to keep track of, but what are you trying to keep track of? Well, a few things, right? Now my approach is a little different, but back then, simple things like, you know, hey, our new secrets showing up. Is there a new repo showing up? Can we look at a repo or a pull request and be like, this looks pretty bad, you know, either based off of some light metrics, like, you know, number of findings from a SaaS tool or a combination of a SaaS tool and SCA or something like that to go, hey, you guys might want to go look at this a little bit more. Just a way to kind of scale out visibility because right now it's, well, I shouldn't say right now, it's always been a challenge to kind of keep your thumb on the pulse of what's actually changing in the code for most companies because there's just so much more written. Right. So you want to keep a pulse on that so you know what to do with it. Is it presenting a risk to your business or it's not? And and you want to perform your testing and controls, implement controls and all of those things on the new assets, new artifacts being generated. So uh, connecting it back to what you all were doing at at Salesforce, which was automating some of those controls implementation or testing and so on and so forth. So humans don't have to do that. But was that also tied to, you know, this visibility aspect of things, meaning somebody creates a new repo and that gets automatically tested or how did that work? Uh, that didn't happen at that time, especially at Salesforce. Salesforce has a lot of acquisitions, which means there's a lot of different tech stacks and different code repositories and stuff like that. So there was a real big challenge of getting hooked up to every code repository to like actually see the changes and see what was happening. You know, there were often times where like, you know, only a handful of people actually had access to the period. And so that made it challenging to do something like adopt whatever SAS all over the place or like put it in a, a pipeline because 
there was just so much variation that it was hard to get that in there. So. Right, right. And I can imagine different tech stacks, different acquisitions, integration related problems, all kinds of source control systems and things changing all the time. And by the time you get done with one integration, another acquisition happens, right? So it becomes a constant challenge. Okay. Did you evolve that automation into something different or it was focused on primarily that use case, stitching things together? Was there anything interesting that was done in addition to that? I mean, there was a little bit more done as well. We, we started to go down the path of there wasn't as much automated testing in the, the Salesforce app store. Um, and so like we were trying to add some automation in there, leveraging the same automation we were using for security assessment kickoffs as well. And, uh, you know, so we were we were reaching out to that because trying to get some more like continuous scanning uh, going on there as stuff gets updated and whatnot so that we can be alerted to something as there was like a big change or all of a sudden, you know, changed risks or whatever. But uh, yeah, that's about as far as we went, at least while I was there. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's pretty cool. Now, in terms of quantifying that impact of uh, security automation, let's say there's a you know, a smaller security team that's uh, somebody from a small security team listening to this uh, podcast and it's a, hey, should I hire somebody for security automation? Should I just have one of my security engineers write some stuff up or how should how should we get a contractor? How should we do it? But before you come to that decision, you got to figure out what's the ROI for it. So uh, do you have any thoughts on, and also now that you're at a company that's not as big as Salesforce, how would you make that decision on when to invest in security automation type of resource or build some things out? Yeah, I don't have a hard metric, but usually I kind of take a peek at the team overall and even across the like whole org, depending on the size of the, the org, and see how many people are actually writing code, you know, per week or per month across the team and how often like programming projects show up, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, if they're showing up pretty often or there's like one or two that are always just going on, might not be the same ones, but like, you know, a few, right? Be that integrating other tools, you know, mapping it to a, a reporting platform or, you know, writing a library or doing scans, whatever. If there's enough of that, that it kind of equals one-ish person, I then think it's about time to start looking to hire somebody that's more dev-focused. One gap that, or one step that we've been doing sometimes before that is talking with the development team or one of the development teams, if like you have a better relationship with them and saying, Hey, we think we need some devs. Are there, you know, one or two people we can borrow for a quarter or two and make sure that they're, you know, being fully utilized. And if that's the case, then like, you know, we can have that as like more proof that we need to, you know, get a head count or two to make yeah. stuff happen. And, uh, yeah, usually that works pretty well. That's actually a really good strategy, you know, just going uh, going forward, like assuming they have some resources to spare. Yeah. If they do, then you're going to get somebody who already knows the stack being used in the company, the best places to get things deployed and get it done the right way. Because I, I've seen cases where people come in, start writing within the security team, start writing all their stacks and automation, deploying stuff, which is totally, completely different than everything else that is being done in the company. Which is kind of okay, but then you want to be aligned with the rest of the organization as well in, in, in some manner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole, you know, eating your own dog food or drinking your own champagne type of situation, right? We want to be able to see how painful it is to use secret management, what it's like to actually deploy our software out to production. How easy is it to get, you know, an infrastructure resource? Yeah. And if there's problems in all those, or there's problem in one or two, like 
we want that feedback so we can improve it. And, you know, it might not be a direct security win, but often if you go help improve those things, it makes it a lot easier to add those, you know, security wins down the road. But oftentimes it is a security win as well. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. In terms of, you know, there's the things in AppSec that are, I guess, a little bit different this time around or these days more recently. Has anything changed in your mind or still the same things or, you know, what are you more excited about these days? Yeah. I mean, like stuff has changed, but it hasn't, right? You know, microservices weren't a thing. Cloud wasn't a thing when I started, right? But there was a proliferation of applications or services. They might not have been microservices, but you might have had a a monolith, right? Had to take care of that, but it was still so big, just like a microservice, right? Like, you know, I will say in general, not every company, but in general, the speed at which things get deployed out to production are a lot quicker nowadays. There's also not as much of an expectation to be a blocker as like it used to be. And also I do feel like devs are more, have a higher bar of expectation from product security and application security than they used to. Yeah. Um, which is good. And then like, I guess looking back at it, you know, the role overall has more, more so from testing and finding issues right then building control like no mean controls isn't like archaic controls but like things to help the devs push out code quicker and help them write secure code more safely and like helping them be better versus you know kind of pointing out their flaws so because you know 2006 2007 a lot of it was code reviews penetration testing maybe some threat modeling and that was about it right there was no real discussion about building libraries to help somebody or improving a framework to make it more secure and stuff like that. There wasn't as much of a discussion back then. Right, right. Yeah, and then the challenge that comes out of the current landscape, if you think about all of the the tooling and the ecosystem that we have today, there's just so many different things that people start using. You know, you have your SaaS and SaaS and secrets and ISE scanners and container scanners and all those kinds of things. But then if you want to translate you know, the best practices or controls into things that developers can actually follow, you know, the guardrails or or paved roads or whatever you want to call it. There's a big disconnect between what developers can actually see versus what the existing security tooling provides in the ecosystem, which probably forces people like yourself to build that automation layer in between that glues things together. Do you have any thoughts on whether this is going in a better direction with some of the newer tooling or it's the same problems that you're seeing? In some ways it's better, right? In some ways, not so much. I do think some of the newer tooling has, like, they expect a little bit more technical. I don't, sometimes, right? They build it for, yeah, just different cases, right? Like, SimGrab, I was thinking of, right? They make it really easy to write rules yeah. versus like CodeQL, which has a whole, you know, learning curve to it or a lot steeper learning curve. But a lot of the new tools still have a lot of the same old problems, right? They spew out a ton of issues. Some of the newer ones are starting to aggregate issues, right? But like we've had bug aggregators for 10, 15 years and it's a hard problem, but there's still like a lot of the tools these days and same as back then too, did not focus on the triage workflow of tools, right? Like how many times have any of us like stood at a tool and like looked at a thousand plus findings and said, how am I going to go through all that? You know, and you just kind of take it for what it is, right? Versus having the tool do some smarts and just be like, these things can probably be grouped together. These items, you know, if you look at this thing, score resolve, 
of your known issues. Like it's a doable thing, right? We, I don't know about you, but I've like written that code. It's not, I'm not a great coder. Um, and if I can write it, then, you know, I feel like other people can. And same way with like, uh, you know, SaaS tools specifically, right? They don't, a lot of them, I don't know if all of them, but a lot of them don't track your quality of the rules, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no, they don't tell you, go, hey, it looks like you're getting, you know, 98% false positive thing on this rule. You might want to shut it off. Like they don't do that, right? But they could track it. I understand right. that would require for somebody to flick a switch to say, you know, uh, false positive or not applicable and stuff like that. But like that does happen. Or they could even go like, hey, we've been seeing this issue for a year. You guys haven't fixed it. And it's obviously not that important to you guys. You know, they can do that stuff, but they don't make our lives easier. They're still kind of approaching it's old school way of just bug flooding. So uh, yeah, not, not to get too ranty, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you all tried to solve that problem somehow internally? I'm not even talking about automation, but just in general. So a lot of the stuff we've been doing recently is we will take a class of security issues. Like as an example, when I got here, there was secrets in the code base. Not surprising. Every place has it, right? Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to fix that, right? And so what we did, like, there's a lot more to the story, but like uh, when we logged the bugs, when the time to come to log the bugs, we separated out and grouped it by repo and secret. So if that secret appeared 18 times in the code base, right, it would be one ticket. And that one ticket enumerated everywhere it was at and then like what you needed to change. And if that same secret was associated with another repo as well, we would leak those tickets as well so that they knew who else might be, you know, dependent if they turned off that secret or rotated and stuff like that. Was that perfect? No, but it was at least better than bombing them with, you know, 18 individual tickets for the same secret because it at least gave them a manageable number uh, for us to, to work through with them. So, and we've been doing that same pattern for other stuff, be that SCA or static analysis findings and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. Has, have you received feedback from the dev teams when they see those things? Not really. You know, most of the feedback is, they're fixing it. Um, sometimes they get, you know, not so happy with us, but that's going to happen. But in general, they seem to fix them. They don't drag their feet as much. That's good, man. I mean, if, if you're seeing them fix it, that's what yeah. you want them to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't you know, I mean, say nice things to you. They just yeah. need to fix the bugs. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, like for the secret stuff, we had like 1900 secret tickets and now we have like 30 in less than a year. So oh, that's I mean, phenomenal. So that's, you know, shout out, like, I mean, the devs did all the hard work, but like, it was cool to watch it happen. So, yeah, I bet you if you convert that into a fancy conference talk title, you'll get a lot of uh, acceptances and CFPs. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's a that's a brilliant success story. Going from nineteen hundred to thirty tickets, not a lot of uh, teams can claim to to be able to reduce that backlog. That's amazing. Awesome. So we are coming right up at time. Anything else that's top of your mind, Mike, that you would you'd like to share? I guess I would. I mean, I don't know if it's trite advice, but it's very common, at least in my realms. Uh, I feel like we still approach things too technically and try and be like, show that we're smart, even if we're not doing it on purpose. You know what I mean? But like, mm -hmm. look at me, I got a XSS, you know, or whatever. And so many of these things that we have to do in security actually more revolves around humans and making those relationships and working with the teams and, you know, figuring out win-win scenarios instead of just pushing things on people. 
And many times I will be more successful talking with the team, figuring out what that problem has and like how I can back that into my problem than anything else. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how this partnership, collaboration, relationship building is so important, but nobody teaches that as security professionals, right? There's no coursework. Hopefully when the little one grows up, if she goes into security, then they have more structured education or training systems built into the skills needed to be a good security professional. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but like we're getting better there because there's absolutely no coursework at all back in like 2003, 2006, right? And now there is, and like people know about that stuff. Right, right. It's awesome. Mike, this was amazing. Thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. Uh, Love the conversation. Great stories around security automation is justification and why and when you need some of these things. It's it's fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much for spending the time. Yep. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.